Hello and welcome to episode 20 of our Thirsty Podcast. Blessed are those who thirst, they will be filled. Those who thirst for righteousness will be filled. Uh, my name is Jeremy Lightnin. I'm here with Michael Zarling, and we are going to take you to the end of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians today. Um, should we start with chapter 8 or anything in chapter 8 did you want to talk about, or are we are we just jumping into... Nine. I'm going to go with nine and reference chapter eight. Okay. So we're beginning with chapter nine and we might make some references to chat. We will make some references to chapter eight. Uh, but in these two chapters, they do kind of go back to back. Uh, Paul talks about the way that uh, we use our money and uh, practice stewardship of all our resources, whether it's money or any resource, uh, and how we use it for the supporting of uh the preached word of God. In the first two verses, Paul compares Corinth with uh, the other congregations in Macedonia, uh, like Berea and Thessalonica. So I ask you, Pastor Lightning, uh, is it good to compare churches to each other? Is it healthy or unhealthy to do so? If you just went by the example you brought up, I, I would say the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to do that. So, um, yeah, I guess it's not wrong. <laughs> but what's what's the danger of comparing yourself to another congregation? Uh, probably the same danger as um, com- you know a parent comparing their their children to each other uh, to say you know why can't you be more like your brother or uh, something like that. It e- even if you word it as nicely as possible, it could still come across as uh, some kind of a, a ranking in, or order of love for your child. Yeah. Paul is not trying to make Corinth or Philippi or Berea or any of the other congregations compete with each other, but he's holding them up as examples. And I think in that way, we can do that in a sanctified manner. I do that on the district mission board as I'll help congregations and say, hey, you need a harvest strategy. Here's a congregation that has a great harvest strategy for bringing families from the school into your church. Uh, you don't know how to do a budget. Here's a congregation that laid out a, a really nice budget. Here's some congregations around you that have some good outreach ideas. Beg, borrow, and steal from them. Uh, you just have to be careful that it doesn't become sinful jealousy, but more sanctified excitement. Paul doesn't just compare uh, the Corinthians to other congregations. He also makes a comparison with the farming uh, practice of farming. And uh, this is what you find in verses 6 and 7, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. Um, I heard a good uh, sermon on this once that uh, really made me think. Uh, the pastor, he was a part-time retired associate of mine, and um, he would preach once a month. And one time he preached on uh, 2 Corinthians 9, and uh, he said, uh, if you're a farmer, you wouldn't say to yourself, oh, I better not put this seed in the ground because then I'll have less seed. Um, That's not how farmers think. They think I better put this seed in the ground so that I can grow more seed and more food. Um, And uh, that's kind of what Paul says here about your money and the way that you give money to church uh, or or any charity. Uh, you, You don't need to say to yourself, I better not give this money away because then I'll have less money. Uh, Actually, it's like seed. It grows and uh, produces a crop and all sorts of other wonderful blessings from God. 
Yeah. So this last week we planted our first garden. Uh, my daughter and her boyfriend had created a, a garden uh, using two by fours before they became like $9, a, a two by four. And then we had uh, five gallon buckets that we filled with dirt well, she would say soil. And then we planted lots of jalapeno peppers and bell peppers and sweet peppers and tomatoes. Uh, only those, but peppers and tomatoes, because those are the only vegetables I like. Uh, but we planted a lot of them because we want a lot, a lot for tomato sauce and uh, spaghetti sauce and salsa and things like that. And it's what you're saying is we want a big harvest. So we planted a lot of, uh, of uh, small plants. And then that goes back to the the giving. And Paul talks about how to give in 1 Corinthians 16 too, because I don't think we spent a lot of time on this back then. He writes, on the first day of every week, each of you is to set something aside in keeping with whatever he gains, saving it up at home so that when I come, no collections will have to be carried out. So Pastor Lightning, when you've taught stewardship in your congregation, you're using that verse and what Paul talks about farming. What have you taught them? How do they, how do they give? Um, well, I, to my shame, I haven't taught a lot of, uh, stewardship. Uh, but, um, uh, those are, that's usually the, did you, you said that you were pulling that from first Corinthians? Yeah. First Corinthians 16 too, when they're collecting the, the offering to send it to Jerusalem for those that are dealing with a famine. And, and I walk usually it's, it's most often it's in a, it was, it would be in an adult instruction class that I would walk through those verses on a lesson on stewardship. And, uh, I would, point out that it says, first of all, this is uh, on a regular basis, uh, first day of the week. Uh, you don't give your leftovers. You you decide ahead of time what you're going to give. Um, it's in proportion to what you have. So God isn't asking you to give more than uh, he has given to you. Uh, he's asking you to give a portion of it or in, in accordance with what you've received. Yeah. And when I've taught this too, I remember Back in our mission congregation, I had a gentleman move in who was a member, and I sat down with him. He was an uh, insurance agent, and he said, Pastor, I've always tithed. I've always given 10%. And some years, I've made $100,000, and some years, I've only made $10,000. So I said, John, then I'm going to pray that you make $100,000 this year. Uh, and that's $10,000 he's giving to the church. And I think of some of our members who have passed away, uh, you know, they've been homebound. And if I'm not able to get there, uh, then the family brings to the church, you know, four, five, six envelopes that every week that devoted shut-in put money into her offering envelope and then uh, was going to be handing those to me when I went there. That's the first day of every week. And then... You know, when I teach this too, I ask them based on what Paul says, uh, God loves the cheerful giver, he says, uh, to give from the heart. So I ask him, well, how do you decide how much you're going to give? I said, well, from the heart. But what's, Pastor Layton, what's the danger of just deciding it from the heart? Uh, your moods change, your emotions are volatile. Yeah, and like Luther said, your heart is an idol factory. Mm. You're gonna, you're, it's tainted with sin. Paul's talking about a sanctified spirit, and so we want to give based on uh, not what's best for us, but what's best for God's kingdom. And when I encourage people to give 
I'll, I'll give to give proportionally to give 10%. We're going to be doing a stewardship emphasis in the epiphany season starting in January. And then for 10 weeks, it's what a Wisconsin Synod has laid out for us of a 10 for 10, encourage members to give 10% for 10 weeks and then to go from there. Because you know what the average Christian gives? No. It's about two and a half percent. And so when I preach about that, to because ma- some of our members, they're giving probably less than that and others are giving more than 10%. So it averages, you know, the median of two and a half percent to three percent. And I'll challenge our people. Think about what we, if we'd done all of this with two and a half percent, imagine what God can do with three times that much, three or four times that much by giving. And it's to try giving that way for, uh, for 10 weeks and then to go from there. And I always remind people, you know, I'll use my wife and myself as an example that we always have given a tithe. We had some pretty lean years in the beginning and yet God always took care of us. We never were hurting so badly that we had to you know, beg, borrow money from our parents. God will take care of you. That's what he's saying by you. Uh, if you sow generously, God will take care of you. And it, I just think w- with what you explained about your own household, uh, there's a good example of uh, God upholding his promise that he made in verse 8 that uh, God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will overflow in every good work. There's all that um, uh, superlative talk, all of that uh, overabundance talk that uh, God is not stingy. And he's, he's, he certainly wasn't stingy with you and your family. Um, the only other thing I had in this uh, chapter was right at the end of the chapter, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Um, what would you think of uh, ever preaching that as a Christmas text? That would be interesting. That would be a, that would be a great text. It. it, it it kind of hit me one time, actually. I heard it was in German, too. Uh, I'm not going to preach in German. That's fine. Ever again. That's fine. Uh, but uh, this was a beloved old uh, sainted professor of ours that um, uh, preached and, and made a whole Christmas sermon about thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, and uh, he, he made it all about Jesus. And I think that's a good thing to, to remember as we talk about stewardship and the, the use of our money is that uh, really that's the, the greatest gift. The indescribable gift is Christ uh, and uh, the gifts that we give to, to God out of thanks for Christ uh, re- quite really pale in comparison. And then to tie in with that, I just want to go back to verses 10, 11, where he talks about uh, being thanks, uh, thankful to God for what he has given us. You know, the big thing he ends with is for Christ, his indescribable gift. But I look in my own life, I'm very thankful for my daughters that this is a very busy season for us. And my oldest daughter, Abby, is graduating from college this week. Uh, next week, my daughter Lydia is graduating from Shoreland. And then last year, my daughter Belle was confirmed. And so we'll have a Graduation party for Lydia in two weeks, and then parties for Belle and Abby in July. 
And we want to thank God for those gifts. And that's what Paul's saying here for all of you. Thank God for those physical blessings that you're given, whatever they are. And then thank God for the greatest gift of his son. And then return uh, your gifts to the Lord, uh, to the church, to uh, you know, Martin Luther College, they just had their call day and we had so many teachers going to the, into the field. Today was, and when we're recording this, was call day at, uh, at the seminary and you had 24 young men go out and be pastors. Thank God for those gifts of men and women to his church. There a lot of those students uh, going out with a lot of debt. Yeah, and that that would be a, a great way to glorify God is uh, any way that we can help them uh, pay off their debt. Um, chapter ten, <clears throat> Paul talks uh, first about spiritual warfare, and uh, when you think about violence and the way that people get things done in this world, e- even if it's not physical violence, uh, you could you could think of uh, political violence or or maneuverings and machinations. Um, uh, Paul talks about a similar kind of warfare, but he says, we do not wage war in the way the sinful flesh does. Uh, certainly the weapons of our warfare are not those of the flesh, but weapons made powerful by God for tearing down strongholds. We tear down thoughts such as all arrogance that rises up against the knowledge of God. And we make every thought captive so that it is obedient to Christ. Um, and I, I think that probably speaks a lot to uh, one of one of your favorite topics, which is apologetics, that we um, would go about engaging the culture by listening to what is the argument that is being made, and uh, then without any kind of physical violence especially, but, but also uh, any kind of trickery, just dismantling it and, and pulling it down and making it captive to Christ. And... There, we can use scripture, but we also use human reason. Uh, Martin Luther liked to call scripture the queen, and then he called uh, reason, dame reason. Uh, Because both in Luther's day and our day, we place reason on par with or even above scripture. for example, this morning in my last catechism class with the seventh graders, we had an Ask the Pastor Day where they were outside. Uh, and the first question that they asked me was, what happens to babies that are aborted? So they started out with a nice, fun, easy one. <laughs> you know, what happens to babies that are aborted? And I included then, well, I said, and also babies that are miscarried or stillborn. And human reason is going to say What? Well, the babies are cute, they're innocent, so they must go to heaven. But we have to put reason underneath the queen of Scripture. And, and I said uh, that the Bible says ev- that the soul who sins is the one who will die. And uh, surely it was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And so we explain that these children are born sinful, and yet our God is good and gracious, and we leave it there. That's where scripture, uh, that's where scripture says and what it does, and we leave it at that. But too often, we want to put reason above scripture, and we make scripture captive to reason. But Luther, I mean, Luther is taking uh, Paul's words here. No, reason is always a servant to scripture. Uh, and then you get into uh, some verses that 
give us a lot of background on what really was the uh, interactions that Paul had to face. So when you think about uh, awkward situations in your own life or heartaches in your own life, um, it's kind of comforting, maybe not even heartaches or tragedies, but just annoyances, things, you know, maybe it's somebody that you work with uh, at your job or um, uh, maybe it's a, a relative who is constantly shooting off his or her mouth and uh, uh, aggravating you all the time by statements that they make. Um, it's kind of neat then to go and take a look at Second Corinthians 10 and see that uh, the Apostle Paul uh, knows how you feel. He struggled with a lot of the same things. Um, and he even references that when uh, he says in verse 10, here's what some people are saying about me. Paul's letters are weighty and strong, but his physical presence is weak and his speech amounts to nothing. And uh, that, that had to have been uh, an awkward type of a topic for Paul to bring up, uh, and, uh, and, and yet he did it and uh, went on to make the argument, let such a person consider what we are by our word through letters when we are away is just what we will be in our work when we are present. Um, and uh, uh, he, he had to handle those things just like you do. And then Paul talks about boasting. He's boasting about Christ and the gospel of Christ. So, Pastor Leighton, I found this quote today, and I wanted you to see what you thought of this, if you agree or disagree. I'm not going to tell you who, who said it, because otherwise you'll know uh, what your reaction should be. He said, uh, he was on the Today Show, he says, I think of it like you have a spare tire in your car. Uh, you're not planning on having a flat, but you have provision just in case something happens. I think the same way. We're going to plan on having a great day, but we may bump into some, you know, people that are rude or our plans may not work out. We may get a negative report, but you have to make the decision before ahead of time that today is a gift from God. I'm not going to get rattled. I'm going to stay in peace knowing that he is in control. Well, you gave me a clue by saying that he was on the today. That it's that it's a he, <laughs> yeah, and that uh, it, it's he was on the Today Show. So I'm gonna guess that is probably uh, televangelists like maybe Joel Osteen. That's exactly who it was. Okay. And so, what do you think about him comparing God to a spare tire? He's a, he's the backup plan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I. I, I I think we usually preach against that in our sermons. We say, oh, shame on us when we make prayer our last resort. It should be, you know, asking God for help should be the, the first thing that we do before we run into all of our troubles. Yeah. I think a better, a better way of putting it is that uh, you and I are in an ambulance that's rushing to the hospital and God is the driver and God is the medic. And God's the one that's putting our, you know, putting the heart monitor on us and jump-starting our heart. And we're doing nothing in the back of the ambulance. We're just there dying from our sin. That's the real picture of, of what our God is like. Uh, but the reason I bring it up here is Joel Olstein likes to boast about his own eloquence and his catchphrases. Because if you're really paying attention, you could hear uh, the you know, his words in there, even though I didn't have the same cadence or hmm. the same Southern drawl he has. Because here or anywhere else when he preaches, he doesn't talk about sin or hell. It's about having your best life now. 
But it's the exact opposite of what the prophets or the apostles or Jesus preached. It's about having eternal life later. But Osteen and other TV evangelists, uh, successful preachers, um, or preachers of success here and now, uh, they're boasting in themselves and in this life. But Paul's point is that true preachers boast in the Lord. Uh, and that is, so you're taking that from verse 17, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, well, this is interesting that you would bring this up now because, uh, this is, I think, uh, the section where Paul talks about, um, comparing yourself to yourself and how that's, that's not really a sensible way to evaluate whether or not you're doing a good job. It kind of goes back to what you said at the beginning of chapter 9 about comparing congregations to each other. You have to have a standard. There has to be uh, some kind of a, a measuring stick to say, um, here's, how good, here's how good I am uh, and, and comparing, yeah, comparing yourself to somebody else. Um, right. And, and think of people that are brand new Christians and, you know, and they, they become all churchified. You know, they want to dress appropriately and act appropriately. They want to be writing, reading their Bible daily and praying and so forth. And those are all good things. And yet that's not what it's, what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is, you know, getting your butt in church. It is receiving the words of absolution from the mouth of the pastor. It is being with God's people, receiving the sacrament, being the church of, uh, because too often today we individualize our, our faith, but that's not the faith of the Old Testament. Uh, they're always gathered in the tabernacle and around it. That's not the, the faith of the New Testament to gather around the temple and God's people always gather in the house churches. Uh, we need to boast in the Lord. And so the big thing is as much as we want to do, like you know, listening to podcasts like this and reading the Bible and praying, better is being with God's people, your family at home in God's word, and then being with God's family in the sanctuary and then even outside the sanctuary of uh, in our fellowship area, hanging out, being the body of Christ. That's how you boast in the Lord. Yeah, one of the things that uh, we, one of the bad things that has come out of uh, the pandemic and uh, all of the social distancing is people not knowing how to interact with each other socially. And this is this is even just in the secular realm that uh, people will talk about how uh, young kids and teenagers are in kind of a crisis because they've spent so much time uh, already, even before the pandemic, focused on uh, technology and communicating through uh, the internet that they don't know how to have a face-to-face -face interaction and, and to, you know, discuss things like one human being to another. And so I think I'm, what I'm hearing you say is we, that's, that's a good thing that we could get better at is um, just socializing and, and having f interpersonal interactions with one another right. uh, as believers. Yeah. All right, let's go on to chapter 11. Uh, chapter 11, uh, Paul talks about uh, being jealous. Uh, he says in verse two, you see, I am jealous about you with a godly jealousy. So not a sinful jealousy because I promise to be present to present you as a pure virgin to one husband, Christ. Uh, 
so he is driven. So Pastor Lanyon, why are pastors so driven? I I kind of think this whole book about uh, the Second Corinthians really gives you a good illustration of why uh, sometimes pastors can be so driven. I don't know if this is what you're driving driving at, <laughs> uh, but uh, when pastors can be so uh, picky and persnickety about uh, fellowship practices, that uh, there's a jealousy there that says it. I th- you know I thought we were committed to each other. And uh, you're sort of uh, straying from me. You're, you're sort of uh, showing more interest in uh, other people who claim to follow Christ, kind of like the super apostles in Second Corinthians. They, they knew how to say Jesus and Lord and all of those things. Uh, and, uh, and yet Paul did not seem to think that they were uh, all they were cracked up to be. Um, and so it, it's still today, I think you can find that uh, a lot of times it's the past. What were you, what were you thinking yeah. of with dri- driven pastors? I, I'm thinking is, you know, pastors are going to, you know, be calling on people, making sure that they're mm. in church, going and visiting them, uh, texting, calling, whatever it is. Well, why? Well, it's what Paul says here. He wants, the, uh, Paul wants to present the Christians in Corinth as the bride to Christ. And that's what we as pastors, you in your new calling at, at Shoreland as a youth ministry minister, me here at my new calling at Water of Life to make sure that the people that we have been uh, given, those saints in our care, our one singular goal is to get them to heaven, uh, to be untainted, to be virgins uh, when they get there. And so our goal is to have those, have the saints in our care here, hearing absolution, uh, receiving and remembering the sacrament of baptism, receiving the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in their mouth, uh, singing God's praising, praises, hearing God's prayers. Why? It's not to make us look good. It's not to make sure we have a good and healthy budget. It's to make sure that the people that we have been called to care about uh, are the ones that are going to end up in heaven to be with Christ as his bride. You kind of reminded me of a woman that, um, well, the, the story doesn't have a happy ending, but um, there was a time when I was uh, sort of evangelizing a family. Uh, there was a, a husband and wife, and they had two little kids, and then the wife's mother uh, also was very much involved in their family, but she lived at a different uh, house uh, in a different neighborhood from them, and they were all sort of prospects of our church. And uh, there was one time when uh, the mother paid me a, a really wonderful compliment in Bible class in front of all our members and, and said, uh, it was something like that your pastor was just so doggedly stubborn that he wouldn't take no for an answer. He just kept insisting that he would come to my house and visit me and share God's word with me and talk about my problems with me, that uh, that's, that's really uh, why, why, we're, why I'm here. Um, like I said, sadly, the family did not uh, go through all the way with uh, instruction class and uh, sort of uh, fell away from our uh, our ministrations at our church. But um, uh, at least for that time, I think kind of illustrates your point about pastors being 
stubborn and uh, jealous for their ministries. Yeah. I tell people that are prospects when I start inviting them to our adult confirmation class, I, I'm very upfront with them. I said, one of us is going to give up <laughs> and give in, but it's, and it's never going to be me. <laughs> You're either going to tell me uh, yes or get lost. Mm-hmm. And, and then they said, well, pastor, I would never say I'm going to get lost. You, you should get lost. I said, well, then you might as well just, <laughs> you just, you might as well just say yes and save <laughs> us a lot of time. There you go. Uh, going on to, uh, I think, verse four, he talks about uh, a different gospel. So a different kind of gospel. And he says, would really be no gospel at all. He says the same thing in Galatians chapter one. He says, to them, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not a gospel at all. So there are all different kinds of gospels that are out there. So I was listening to another podcast, and we'll just listen to our podcast, Pastor Lightning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was listening to a podcast this week while I was cutting grass, and it mentioned Rick Warren of Saddleback Church. Uh, so they are ordaining three women to be pastors. And Saddleback Church is part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And as it was brought up in the podcast, Rick Warren is a smart guy. He knows what he's doing. So what he's trying to do is bring this discussion to a head with the Southern Baptist Convention. And then once women ordination happens, well, you know what's next. It's going to be ordination of homosexuals. And then... A saddleback will look like, well, they're with the culture, except they're actually behind the times with the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America that the ELCA has recently ordained a transsexual person as a mm. bishop. And then I read this morning that the largest Lutheran denomination in Europe just announced that it's trans, that the whole denomination is trans. Yeah, I'm not kidding. Uh, these are all other gospels. Wait, wait, do you mean trans friendly or no, just trans? They just use the word trans, that they are trans. So they're trans friendly too, but find, find <laughs> it. Yeah. Uh, in all of these places, they are promoting self over salvation, culture over Christ, bo- boasting about the new things that they're doing instead of boasting about the inerrancy and sustainability of scripture. It's another gospel. This is also the uh, section of verses where I correct me if you know better, but I think verse five is the first time in the whole letter where Paul actually puts a label on his opponents and he calls them the super apostles. Um, and it, but he does it to say, I do not think that I am in any way inferior to the super apostles, but even if I am an amateur in speech, yet I am not an amateur in knowledge. No, in everything, we have clearly demonstrated that to you in every way. Um, so it, even if I am not good at uh, speaking or if I kind of stutter and stumble uh, through my words here, uh, there's there's plenty of evidence that I know my Savior and that I know how to share my Savior with you, um, and uh, you don't need to let my shortcomings uh, hinder that message or give you any reason to disbelieve it. Yeah, and then, you know, like you said, we've talked a little bit about fellowship principles on this podcast, and 
as Paul compares himself with the super apostles and their gospel, which is really no gospel at all, you know, I think of the main discussions I've had over the years about the doctrine of fellowship. And you know who has the biggest issue with the doctrine of fellowship? Which Christians? The Wisconsin Synod Lutherans? Yeah, Wisconsin Synod Lutherans. Yeah. And why is it? It's because they have no idea what's out there. They think that everyone is, uh, that everyone has churches where the pastors are preaching law and gospel. They're pointing to Christ and they just assume that it's all just like it is here. But it's a mess out there. And I've been blessed to have lots of adult confirmations in my ministry. And I can only think of one time where someone decided out of 25 years in the ministry, one guy decided to leave our church to go to his previous church. Most everyone else, they realize the mess they came from. They don't want to go back there. And that's what Paul's talking about. There's a mess out there. Uh, uh, Christians in Corinth don't go into that mess. Uh, were you hap- did you happen to attend uh, over a year ago, there was a, a Wells Leadership Conference in Chicago? I did not. I was not a very good leader that week. No, <laughs> uh, no there was a, a presentation by uh, Pastor John Schrader in which um, he did a really kind of neat thing. He had this computer program that uh, or, uh, some kind of a cloud-based internet thing where uh, you could text in if you were a presenter or if you were a, a, a observer of his presentation. And it was a huge crowd of, uh, I think, several hundred at least um, were, were listening to him speak. And he posed the question to everybody, uh, what do you think outsiders think of the Wisconsin Synod? And, uh, and text a word that you think most describes what outsiders think. And it, somehow everything that was texted to him popped up on the screen with, you know, d- d- words that came up more than others would be bigger. But for the most part, you got a lot of a cluster of words like things like um, closed minded or stubborn or uh, uh, behind the times, things like that. Uh, and these are all Wells people responding to him with these text messages. And he said, okay, here's, okay, so we will kind of note everything that you've said. And then, um, and then he, he said, now, why don't you listen to, uh, here are some words that uh, all of, and, and of course he's speaking at this because he's got uh, a church that has just boomed and blossomed with the Holy Spirit's grace of converting hearts. And, and he said, uh, here's some things that people who have joined my church have said about the wells. And and they're coming from uh, you know either non-churched or or non-Lutheran backgrounds, and here's what they've said. And these words were popping up like refreshing, or uh, uplifting, or you know uh, Christ-centered and gospel-focused. And it's like, yeah, we've got this inferiority complex that's uh, like like oh we we can't be who we are. We need to be somebody else. Oh. That's not how outsiders see it. Right. That's a good point. At the end here, Paul talks about all of the crazy stuff he went through to be an apostle. He said, I've done more work than you have. Uh, I've been whipped more, been close to death more times. Verse 24, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. 
Once they tried to stone me to death, I was shipwrecked. I, I just want to say this is. I mentioned last week how Paul likes his lists. He just <laughs> he just rattles through lists, and like this is the big mamma jamma uh, list to end all lists. At the end of his letter here, he's saying, "Let let me let me tell you everything that I have been through." And um, I, I did want to quick before we get yep. into it point out this very important verse, uh, verse fifteen. Uh, where Paul tells us that, uh, that uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, verse 14, that uh, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And so just because we see these uh, teachers who claim to follow Christ uh, and, and they sound very good, um, well, Satan knows how to dress himself up like one of God's true angels too. But let me let, me let you get back to... Yeah, so he's got this whole list, and it's interesting because this morning while I was on my bike ride with my 21-year-old college daughter, Miriam, she was talking about a book that she had listened to, and she said that, uh, you know, the author made the connection that many driven people, like superior athletes, CEOs, politicians, and so on, are actually psychopaths. Uh, So most of us are normal people and we're driven, but we're also driven by fear and fairness. But she said that the author made the point, psychopaths aren't concerned about those things. They're driven by success. That's just their nature. And then the problem is when these psychopaths have the nurture that they have bad parenting and a bad environment, that's when they become mass murderers and so forth. Uh, but then the really interesting part of listening to her recount that story is that the author claimed that Paul was a psychopath. Hmm. I don't know if you'd ever heard something like that. Uh, as he, I think, isn't this even the letter where he talks about if I'm out of my mind? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so as evidence, he used the account at the end of this chapter. Because what person, he said, in his right mind gets stoned and then walks back into the city where the persecutors are residing? Now, mm-hmm. I didn't listen to the book or read it. I'm, this is all secondhand. And I'm not saying that Paul was a psychopath. It's just interesting that he's saying that he is so driven in his ministry that nothing and no one could stop him. And then for us as pastors and you as listeners, you know, may we be as driven uh, to have that sanctified drive uh, that, it, that it looks like we're psychopaths when it comes to the Lord, that nothing and no one gets in the way of us boasting about our, about our Lord. I, the, probably the one thing that would set it apart, I, I don't know my pathologies uh, like a, a trained therapist or anything, but I think a psychopath, like the, the truly, you know, malicious ones, uh, they they don't have any feeling for other people. They don't have empathy, um, or or at least they don't listen to their empathy if they do have it. And uh, probably that would set Paul apart here because uh, he says in verse twenty eight that uh, the daily he feels the daily pressure and concern for all the churches. And who is weak without my being weak? Who falls into sin without my being distressed? Um, that that not only was he driven. And there probably was a certain level of uh, 
psych- psychopathy to uh, his ambition, but uh, he also knew how to be empathetic. Yeah. So all of you that are listening, you can go look it all up and so <laughs> forth. But uh, chapter 12, uh, he goes on boasting, and now he's going to start boasting about himself. He says in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was carried up to the third heaven. Uh, and it's interesting, again, in our... Asked the pastor class today, one of the students asked me what the third heaven was. And I explained that the Jews talked about three heavens. The first heaven being what we would call the sky, you know, the atmosphere where you got the clouds and the birds. And then you've got the second heaven, which is space, Uh, the stars, the moon, the planets, the sun. And then the third heaven is heaven, what we think of heaven. And we talked about it today. And I'm not saying this is right or anything, but we kind of talked about, you know, where is heaven and where is hell? You know, that the angels can get to us so fast and the demons can get to us so fast to tempt us and the angels protect us. And they said, well, could it be like another dimension? Because they're all in a superhero movie. So I said, yeah, maybe, you know, we always think of hell as being down and heaven being up, but you know, think of uh, not like there's all kinds of dimensions, like in the DC universe or something like that, but just to think of that uh, heaven is around us. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm no, just, I, that is, I'm, I'm not just talking crazy. 110% okay. with you. Yeah. Um, I, and I think that you can sort of see the hungering in, in, in thirsting in our uh, comic book culture in our pop culture all around us, you can see that hunger that uh, God has Im- Im- embedded in us for uh, otherworldly things uh, that even even when you don't have the Holy Spirit or God's inspired word, you're still thinking in terms of, well, what if there's another uh, universe or what if there's a, a, a dimension or a realm outside of this one or or that sort of overlaps with this one in a way that uh, if we could just open a portal we could we could enter it or they could enter here and um now, it, now you're getting into the whole dc universe if that's, supergirl and and flash and all that if 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 that but i guess my point is if that is so strong that even in our storytelling secular culture uh it comes through then um God's word really uh, meets that need and, and uh, satisfies that uh, appetite. Yeah, so Paul says that he was carried up to the third heaven, probably bodily. And then he goes on to say that he received a thorn in the flesh. So you want to talk about the thorn in the flesh? Well, uh, as long as you toss that my way, um, this is a passage that is very frequently used uh, by people to point out that God sometimes says no to our requests that we make of him in prayer. And uh, I, would, I would suggest to you that when you look at the exact wording that God uses in chapter 9, um, there's not really a no. Uh, is, is there really a no? Maybe I should phrase it as a question. Is there really a no? Well, I would have said yes until you just posed a question that way, so I'll let you go. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I'm, I'm willing to be corrected on this, but uh, 
the, the, when you look at Jesus's promises in the gospel, he spends a lot more time saying things like, ask and you shall receive. Uh, whatever you ask the Father in my name, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And I'm not saying God is a vending machine or a genie that you just rub the lamp and make your wishes and he does whatever you tell him to do. Uh, but I am saying there's a lot more ink that the Holy Spirit has inspired telling us that God will answer our uh, requests in a positive way then that will tell us that uh, God will reject our requests. And I think even my point is, even here, when it says my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness, um, that if you're looking closely and listening carefully, he's not saying no. Um, he's, he's giving, he's distracting Paul. You could say that he's saying, look at this over here. Stop, stop paying attention to your pain and look at, uh, uh, my grace. But, uh, I would say is, does Paul still have his thorn in the flesh right now? Well, he's in heaven with his new, new body or yeah, he's, yeah. Yeah. And you know, when I've taught this too is, you know, maybe, that God is not saying no, it's he's saying, well, here's something better. Yeah, yeah. You know, you want me to take away the thorn in the flesh, but I'm going to give you something better. And uh, again, Miriam and I, you know, a 12-mile bike ride, there's a lot of things to talk about with, with the daughter, so it's kind of cool. And we were talking about, you know, the plans that she has for the future. And I told her some of the things I've talked with Belle, my youngest, who at one point wanted to be a veterinarian, now she wants to be a CSI agent. But I told her, I said, Belle, you know, I don't know if you're going to be able to handle you know, all of the rigors of being a veterinary, uh, a veterinarian. It's, that's a lot of work. And besides, I'd, ra- I'd rather you become a, a mom, you know, stay at home for 13, 15 years like your mom did, and then raise your, your children, and then go on if you want to deal with the pets and so forth, then be the nurse uh, or the technician in, in the veterinarian's office. And I bring it up here because, you know, for her, she may be driven and asking God, let me be this veterinarian. But God says, I've got something better for you. You can raise your two, three, four kids, whatever it is, and then watch them playing their soccer games. And then the other sports that you do during the year, just to stay in shape for soccer. And then, uh, you know, that's more fulfilling. And I think that's what God's doing here and what you're saying instead of just a no answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then I'll, I'll ask you this question then too. How would you minister to people who are dealing with a thorn in the flesh? Because Paul had it so bad that he called it a messenger of Satan. Hmm. And so I, I think that Paul you know, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit leaves it very vague because some people say maybe it was a speech impediment because, uh, you know, take it away, you know, because as a pastor, you know, you're preaching all the time. And if you're stumbling mm. over your words, mm-hmm. some have said it's poor eyesight because he signed, seems to sign his letters that are dictated with big handwriting. And Galatians, uh, in Galatians, he talks about the Galatian Christians, uh, if they would have, they could have. If they could have, they would have offered him their own eyes yep. for his eyesight. Yeah, and some thought, might, some th- people think it might be malaria that he was weak and sick all the time. We don't some know. Kind of temptation to some temptation to commit certain sins that uh, 
would would really be disheartening to him that he's being tempted in that way. Um, I saw one cartoon in which the Apostle Paul was uh, depicted in prison and writing the letter to this, the second letter to the Corinthians and uh, in the prison cell in the next to him in the chains uh, was SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> And it, he call, he was calling SpongeBob a messenger of Satan. Oh, jeez. So. <laughs> well, I was thinking that, I don't know if you've ever seen icons in the Greek Orthodox Church of Paul. Uh, he's not a good looking man. So maybe that was his impediment. Oh, yeah. Flesh. He is a very <laughs> homely looking man there. Sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, how would you minister to, to people there if if they have what any of those kind of things that we've talked about? Well, I mean, if the, first of all, you can certainly ask God to take it away like Paul did. I mean, that that's following his example. And uh, why wouldn't God do that? Well, uh, if he wouldn't do it, then like you said before, uh, he must have something better. Um, but you asked me how I would minister to them. I think that uh, what I've learned, especially in recent years, is the best way to uh, win people's hearts over for, for the gospel uh, that I would be preaching to them is to to just really listen and soak up with the, you know what tell me all about how bad this is what an what an awful thorn in the flesh this is why don't you just go ahead and and vent it all out and 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 let me listen and let me feel the pain with you and uh, and then once you know that I have listened to you thoroughly I can tell you that God's grace is sufficient yeah. And then verse 10 is another reason why uh, Miriam's conversation with me about Paul being a psychopath uh, strikes home. He says, that's why I delight in weaknesses in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties for the sake of Christ. You know, who, who else besides a psychopath would delight in all of those things? Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, you know, Paul is saying... Uh, for us, and this would be what you would, I think you and I, when we're ministering to people would say, uh, it's when we're weak in our cancer. That's when we find our strength in Christ. When we're insulted for being a Christian, then we remember we're, that those people are really insulting Christ and not us. That when we face har- hardships, we find our comfort uh, and ease in Christ, that when we're persecuted, we rejoice that we're counted worthy of persecution like the apostles. And when we face difficulties, we remember that we never learn anything by doing the easy thing. Yeah. In order to learn anything, there has to be some kind of discomfort or pain or uh, hard hard labor involved. Uh, just what you said about insults kind of made me think of um, stu- students that have uh, brought up in, in high school students that have brought up the topic of bullying and... Uh, how they are bullied for uh, maybe their hobbies that uh, that they partake in, and um, that's a real shame that 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 would happen, especially if it's at a Christian high school that that bullying would take place. And uh, at the same time, uh, that yeah, what a crazy idea to think of saying to somebody who is the target of bullying, um, "Hey, do you think you can find any joy in that?" Can you can you find any uh, uh, delight in uh, being bullied? Because uh, if you can, I mean that kind of first. I guess even from a secular standpoint, that takes away the uh, 
the very thing that the bully finds most enjoyable is knowing that I caused another person pain. If I'm actually causing the other person delight, uh, maybe I would want to knock it off. And then let's go on to chapter 13. Do you have anything in the first couple of verses of 13? Uh, I'll follow your lead. (laughs) All right. So uh, in verse 6, Paul says, But I hope that you will recognize that we are not failing the test. We pray to God that you may not do anything evil so that we may appear to have passed the test. And so Paul is saying he wants them to pass the test. And this is test season for you. You have it. All right. Do you have a tough exam for your your German and religion students at Shoreland or is it pretty easy? Uh, Yes. (laughs) It it depends on... Who's listening? Which, which, uh, if we're talking about German 2 or German 1 or the religion class, the people who need to make up the Reformation history test or the uh, just taking the final. So it depends. So what's the test that Paul's talking about here that he wants the Corinthians to pass? Uh, Are you, are you actually a believer in Jesus? Yeah. And, and I was thinking about this and, you know, Pastor Lightning, how do you feel when you see someone that you nurtured in the faith, you confirmed, and then they give up that faith? Yeah, that's... Do you feel like... That's a sock to the gut, sure. Yeah, Yeah. and I've had that. Uh, And I think Paul's words are a reminder to me that it's not my fault. If I did everything I could as a pastor, as a preacher, as a shepherd, and then that person still went his or her own way, that's on them. They failed the test. But you and I as teachers, we did everything we could. We presented the absolution, the sacrament, God's word in class and from the pulpit, and then people rejected it. That's on them. And uh, you've got that great uh, point that Paul makes in verse 10 about... you know, pastors or teachers are authority figures, parents are authority figures, uh, and yet that's not something that we use to, um, you know, trumpet or puff ourselves up with pride. Uh, Paul says, I use the authority that God, that the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Um, and and that's, that's kind of our uh, main goal. It's not just kind of, it is our main goal is to build up the people. We want, we want to see them succeed. We don't want to see them fall away. Like right. you were saying, we want to see them succeed and, and we will do whatever we can to that end. Um, I, the only other thing I had is uh, just a thought that uh, I forget which year of the lectionary it is, but uh, in, in the series of readings that we do in, in our churches, um, the closing verses, I think it's uh, 11 to 14. In any event, it's definitely verse 14 is appointed for uh, Trinity Sunday. And I don't, I forget if that's your A, B, or C, but um, did you want to talk at all about the connections to the Trinity? I was going to talk about with that being the blessing that's uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So that's the the invocation that's used in the service of word and sacrament. And then it's used sometimes as the benediction at the end of the service for some of our other services. Uh, but if yeah, that's, that's the very familiar, blessing. the yeah. very familiar. Uh, uh, oh, the apostolic. Right, right. I was going to say uh, sometimes uh, pastors will use it at the end of a sermon. Right. Yeah. 
I wanted to to end then with uh, verse 13 about greeting one another with a holy kiss. Uh, and, and just because, you know, I've got all these graduation parties coming up in my family. So my one niece, Lexi, is was just... Uh, she just graduated. My other niece, Anna, is being con- is graduating, and Lydia. So they're all the same age. They're all graduating. And my brother-in-law, Tom, will be there. And so I have to watch out for him because his family likes to kiss. He'll sneak up and plant a big wet one on the cheek. <laughs> and I don't know what it was like in your churches, those, who, those of you who are listening, you know, with the last year, if you were still shaking hands with your pastor or not. Uh, I'll be honest, I put my hand out there all the time. And if people didn't feel comfortable shaking my hand, that's fine. You know, those that did, they shook my hand. Uh, what made me feel uncomfortable was the elbow bump. You know, that just, you know, I grew up watching wrestling. So th- for me, uh, the elbow, that's what Randy Macho Man Savage uses off the top rope. Uh, that's what The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, uses when he gives the people's elbow. So if they wanted me to give them the Lord's elbow off the top of a pew, <laughs> I'll do that. But, you know, bumping elbows, I'm not with, for that. With your uh, stole flying through the air. That's right. So, uh, but shake your pastor's hand, okay? Don't give him a kiss. Let's, let's make some physical contact. There you go. Anything else you want to bring up? I'm all done. All right, so next week... Uh, we're going to look at another one of the minor prophets. We're going to look at Micah. So this is Pastor Zarling with Pastor Jer Bear Lightenin. Uh, that's from Pastor Hunley and your friends at Bethany uh, as in Kenosha as they're celebrating their 100th anniversary. Ah, uh, how sweet of them. Yeah. Uh, stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.